Amen. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, which is always what we encourage, uh, I'm going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is, uh, John's the fourth book of the New Testament, if that helps you find it. And if for whatever reason, I don't make this announcement every week, but if for whatever reason you're like, I wish I had a Bible that I could understand, or I just wish I owned a Bible, uh, there are some good apps on your phones and tablets and things that are good, but we'll we'll give you a Bible. There's Bibles to give away uh, in that little bookie area to the left as you go out. Uh, Help yourself to to the Bible, and uh, that will help you follow along. Um, full disclosure, I feel like I may have bitten off more than we can chew today, and so we will get to work pretty quick on John 4, but I just want to ask a, a question. Uh, has anybody ever had a moment where the truth was really, I don't know, uncomfortable, unwanted? You wanted it not to be true, but it just, it, truth is, it just got you. Sometimes that happens, right? You know, sometimes you, you think, oh, you have a special occasion coming up, and you have your favorite outfit in the closet. It is, you look amazing in this outfit. You go put the outfit on, and for some reason, it shrank since the last time you put it on. And you just, like, you want so badly for that outfit to fit. You try it on, you look at it, you ask somebody to look at it, you try to button it, you try to, you do everything you can. And the truth is, the unfortunate truth is, is that something has happened to that dress or that outfit or to you, but that thing is not going to work for this occasion. No matter how bad you want it, the truth is the truth, and it, it, just, it just doesn't fit. Um, I, wonder, I wonder what else we have in this world that no matter how bad you want it, the truth is it just doesn't work. I think, I think mullets fit this category. I don't know why as a, as a community, like I feel like Billy Ray Cyrus taught us a thing or two about mullets in the 90s, uh, and for some reason, we're all convinced that mullets are a good idea now, and Maybe they are. I could be wrong. I just feel like, you know, uh, in, in 10 years, we're going to regret that decision again, because no matter how bad you want it, the truth is the truth. I'm not making it. I don't see any mullets in here. I feel like I may be making fun of somebody. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's a little less, uh, you know, humorous. We, we, we go to the doctor, we have the test, and we want so badly for the be the good news. And then the doctor gives us the bad news, the hard diagnosis, the hard truth truth. And so many of us, like we just want so bad for that doctor to not have said that thing. We, we were shocked and we're hurt. And I wonder like, is the doctor the bad guy in the story, right? Is it the doctor's fault that that diagnosis is true? Or is the doctor just saying the kindest thing he can by giving clarity and truth in the moment? What, what I'm wanting to look at today are these moments in life, and there are so many, both in our physical world and our, in, you know, in, a, in our upbringing, but also in the spiritual realm, that we want so bad for a thing to be true. But the thing about truth is that truth is incredibly stubborn and incredibly hard to move. It's, it's not like a cartoon where like gravity doesn't kick in until you realize, oh, I'm standing off the edge of a cliff. No, gravity is always going to take you down, and some truths, they're just hard to take. And so today in John 4, what we're going to meet, we're going to meet a woman that has no name in Scripture. History has given her a name, but no name in the passages that we're going to meet. She's known as the woman at the well. And the woman at the well has some thoughts and some questions for Jesus because she has hoped and her entire people have hoped this one thing is true. And it turns out Jesus, in a very kind and direct way, tells her that that thing that you wish were so true about God actually isn't true. And the kindest thing I can do right now is just to tell you that that isn't true. And then I'm going to take you to a new place. And the question has to be, is can this woman handle someone telling her the hard truths 
uh, in that moment? Or would she do like so many of us, like, no, this mullet looks great, and I'm going to, I'm going to roll with it. This thing, I'm not going to listen to the doctor. I'm going to do what I want. Or, or can she take the truth and find new freedom as a result of that? What we're going to see is that God is incredibly gracious, but his truths are very stubborn. God is gracious and good, and he loves you, and he wants what's best for you. But when he starts telling you the things that are true, he is immovable. He is stubborn about those truths. And the kindest thing we can do, the best thing we can do for ourselves and for others, is to get on the track of truth. I don't know why that popped in my head. Uh, Get on some kind of firm foundation of that is true, whether I like it or not that is true. Now what can I do with it? And it turns out that God's grace is very powerful. So let's look at it together. Uh, like I said, I, I think we've bit off a little bit more than what we can chew, but we will, we will go through John chapter 4 together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one, one quick Bible study tip. If you want to do uh, something, I don't have time to do this as part of our sermon, but if you were with us for the last few weeks, you may remember a guy named Nicodemus that we looked at. Uh, Nicodemus is kind of beginning in John chapter 3, and John, uh, this the author here, he, he wrote, as you can imagine, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Uh, but uh, if you take the story of Nicodemus and what we're about to read about the woman at the well, and you just read them side by side, the parallels are incredibly powerful. I mean, just to give you a little bit of a taste of it, you have Nicodemus who knows everything about God and still is getting worship wrong. And then you have the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, who is very wrong about things about God, but wants it so bad, still gets some things wrong about God. One is a spiritual giant. One is at the bottom of her rope. And, and we're meant to like hold those two side by side and feel, find out, this is interesting, find out that Jesus is willing to meet both kinds of people. The religious elites who seem to know everything about God and still get things wrong, and people who just wish God would give them a break. Jesus meets both of them. But we'll, we'll begin reading in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, and see where we get. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so nobody gasped when I said that. Like, if, if, if this were the first generation and, and, and John had, you're reading John for the first time, he said, and you had to pass through Samaria. Grandma's clutching her pearls in the back. Someone's covering their kids' ears. Like, Samaria's not the place you want to go. We'll look at that in a moment. Uh, but I can tell we're all Gentiles and Americans. That's okay. So, uh, in verse five, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour. It's high noon. It's 12 noon. Jesus, scripture says, wearied from his travel. John does a really great job of telling us the the divinity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, but he's in the flesh. And so there's all these little notes that Jesus got tired. That's what John is telling us. Jesus was on a long journey. It's like he needed a break. And so he sits down at this well in the middle of nowhere, Samaria. And it says, and a woman from Samaria, just this random woman, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And in case we're Americans living in the 21st century, John adds this phrase, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. 
So we have this drama that's unfolding. What, what is going on with Samaria? Why don't they like them? And what can we learn from that uh, today? Um, little history lesson for all the nerds in here. Hike up your glasses. Give me four minutes to get through the history lesson. And then I'll land the plane and make a point. But Samaria, as a group of people, has not always existed. Uh, in fact, at the time of Jesus, this people group is only about 800 years old. And before that, if you go back 900 years, they were Jewish just like the people of Judea, just like the people of Jerusalem. And so what happened in the 8th century BC that changed the climate right here? Well, you have countries conquering each other all the time. And one of the countries, you can read this in the Old Testament, Assyria comes in and takes out the north, which includes this land of Samaria. And the Assyrians just wipe out everybody. They, they go in and they take all the strong men who are military age, they take them out. They're like, you're out of here. I don't want any fighting. They take the young men who look like they're going to be strong and can work. They take them into slavery. They leave the women. They leave the children. They take a few, and then they bring other slaves from other parts of the world, and they put them in this area, and they're like, make a life, do, do what you can. And so the Assyrians disrupted all of this people group in the 8th century BC. And so these people, doing what people do, uh, they just make the best of it. They do what they can. They build a family, they get jobs, they do what they can, but they still identify as Jewish. They still identify as, we're going to follow Yahweh, we're going to be faithful to him, we don't know where our people went or if God will ever bring them back. It's a real scary time, but they just hold on to their faith while they're intermarrying with various groups of people. You fa fast forward about 100 years, and the people who were taken off into slavery, the Jews, they start coming back into town, and they get ready to rebuild the temple, and there's this new group of people, the Samaritans. Like, who are you guys? Where, where do you guys? Oh, we worship Yahweh. No, you're not the right color. You don't look like me. You're like, you're half a Syrian. Are you kidding me? You're the reason we're in this problem. And so this division began to form between the Samaritans and the Jews. If you read in the Old Testament books of uh, like Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews are coming back into Jerusalem. They're like, we want to rebuild the temple. And we read that the Samaritans were like, we would love to have the temple. We want there to be a temple to Yahweh. Let us help you. If you read Ezra, it's like, no, you're Samaritans. Get out of here. You're unclean. We don't want you anywhere near our God. Get away. And so this division starts to develop. The Samaritans aren't allowed to worship. They rebuild the temple without the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans, their uh, solution to this, they're going to build their own temple. They're going to build their own temple, and they're going to worship God their way on this other mountain, kind of close by, as close as they can get. They build their own temple, and they start to worship God. And because of this anger that's developing between them and the Jews, they look at the Old Testament, and they think, we don't need any of the prophets. Get rid of Psalms. Get rid of Kings. They only have the first five books of the Old Testament, and they build their faith from the writings of Moses. And you keep fast-forwarding, and this faith grows and grows. And no matter how much they wanted to worship over there, it, the Jews just wouldn't let them into town. Fast-forward, 3rd century BC, Alexander the Great. Maybe, maybe you know this guy. Uh, he decides, you know what? I'm going to conquer the world. And so he starts conquering everybody. He lands in Samaria, conquers them, and then he uses Samaria as a home base to start conquering uh, the Jews, Jerusalem. The reason why the Roman Empire has control of Israel in the time of Jesus is because Alexander the Great conquered them and just handed it over to Rome a few hundred years later. And so the, the Jewish people are really angry at the Samaritans. Like, how dare you let the Greeks get in here? How dare you let this happen? And so in the first century BC, you're going to love this, when things are starting to calm down, and all the invaders are kind of going away, but we're under other rule. Uh, the Jewish people look at the temple that the Samaritans have built on Mount Gerizim. They go tear it down. They're like, we're done with that. Like, you're worshiping the wrong God. You're probably the reason why the Romans are here. They just can't stand them. And so they tear it down. So tensions r r rise even higher. By the time you get to this story, 
where John lets us know the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They have 800 years of hating each other, fighting each other. They would use each other as racial slurs against the other ones. They would use each other as like the boogeyman in the stories that they tell their children. Oh, you're going to grow up. You're probably going to be just like that Samaritan. No, I'm not. Don't say that. You know, like they just, they just could not stand each other. It was so violent and so angry that they would, they would knock the dirt off of each other's shoes. If, if you happen to have some Samaritan dirt on your feet. You, you, were, you were like, get that out of here. Get this out of, out of our city, out of our town. They would knock it off. And so when scripture says that Jesus had to go to Samaria, everybody clutched their pearls because this is going to be bad. It's going to be war. Jesus is a religious leader. He's bringing a religious message to a people who got religion all wrong. They're, they're making up stuff as they go. They're ignoring half of the Bible at this point. Surely Jesus is going to go there and set them straight. Surely Jesus doesn't talk to Samaritan people. Why, why is any of this important? Uh, a couple of reasons. Some of us, we grow up in homes to where things of religion are violent. Things of religion are, God's not going to have anything to do with me because, I mean, obviously, look at the last 800 years of how people have been treating us. And it turns out that Jesus has a lot of time for him. It, tur- it turns out that Jesus has a lot of time for you. Uh, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, Nicodemus had all of the scriptures and he still got some things wrong. Jesus talked to him, informed him of the things that he got wrong. When Jesus talks to the woman at the well who only has the first five books of the Bible, she, he still talks to her. You know, some of us are like, I have an incomplete knowledge of God. I don't know everything about God that this guy over here knows. Let me tell you something. Jesus still has time for you. There's a long history with lots and lots of pain. And Jesus, just sitting there, it's just him and this woman. He says, hey, give, give me a drink of that water. And she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> we don't talk to each other. Why are you doing this? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So given, given what we just learned about Samaritans and their dealings with the Jews, that first line, hey, if you knew the gift of God, like how would you receive that? Would you receive that kind of judging? Would, would that be a little bit of a, a sting? I think, I think sometimes it could be. We, we overlook this, but, but because Jesus is going to explain the gift, he is going to explain to her who he is. And so let's not fast forward to that moment. For her, Jesus is dropping like a little bit of a bombshell that it would be easy for her to be like, you're just like the rest of the Jews. You're just like the rest of the people. You're just like them. She could have easily walked away. Something we're going to find about this woman is that she does what so many other people in the book of John do. She deals with Jesus honestly. She deals with him honestly. She asks follow-up questions. She becomes a little curious you know, so many times when, when someone is kind of testing out the Jesus water, they're trying to, like, I don't know about this faith. Let me ask you a question. That first note, you're like so offended, like so quick to, ah, I can't. You're just like the rest of them. And then we, we stop listening right away. Sometimes the greatest piece of insight we're going to gain in our faith and in our walk towards truth is on the other side of that first stumbling block, on the other side of that first zinger. If you knew the gift of God, woman at the well, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. We we start to catch this hint that Jesus is kind of blending metaphors. You have you have like world words like water and drink. Then you have like spiritual terms like living water. Like there's something Jesus is about to change gears with her. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, 
Uh, I can see, you know, like I, I have eyes. To, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, see, what, what I love about this woman is uh, if, if you've ever met an independent person who is strong, who doesn't take any lip from anybody, uh, I kind of get this vibe from her. Hey, uh, if you knew who it was that was asking you, you would ask me for water. Oh yeah, big guy? You don't have a bucket. I don't see that you have anything. In fact, you're over here looking for water from me. So like, tell me, she, she's strong. She, she's a thinker. She's, she's not easily manipulated. We're going to find out that she has a bit of a, a history that, that has made her strong. Maybe she's overcome some stuff, but, but she asks follow-up questions. I, I, I had a conversation online recently with uh, another pastor. He, he's in Canada, actually. Uh, and he was talking about this inability for people to ask questions in church. I wonder how many of us have an experience of church faith talking to religious people like some questions are off limits. So, some, 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 some lines of, of curiosity that you have, you're like, I'm just not allowed to ask that. Can, can I be honest with you? That's kind of a, a problem in the church. If, if God is true, if what we're discussing is true, there should not be a question in the world that actually scares us away from that, right? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be the case? I mean, if, if God isn't true, if I was nervous that you might find the hole in the faith that you can figure it out, then of course I'm going to be a little defensive around your questions. I might not want to talk about gender and I might not want to talk about these things. But if, if God is true, all questions should be reasonable questions. Yes? See, this woman, she asks a hard question. Hey, you know what? You say you've got some living water. You don't have a well. Tell me, are you greater than, than Jacob? Uh, just because I don't have a lot of time to continue unpacking right here, I want to get to something in a moment. Let me just say this. Uh, Jesus is safe to ask all of your hardest questions of. The ones that are burning holes in your gut that are causing you to lose sleep at night. Like, what about this? And then you think, oh, I can't ask anybody at church because then they think I won't have faith and then they won't love me and then they won't like me. All questions are on the table. You're welcome to ask them, but you need to be prepared for answers that you're not comfortable with. That's what's going to happen with our woman here. And so Jesus says in verse 13, <coughs> she says, uh, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so now Jesus has completely shifted gears. Hey, see this well right here? You're going to drink of this. It's going to satisfy you. And then what's going to happen again? Anybody? I get thirsty again. I'm just, I'm just going to get thirsty again. And then, and then he kind of turns gears. He says, but this living water I've been kind of hinting at, if you drink of this, you're going to be satisfied and you're never going to thirst again. Jesus is immediately kind of shifting as he goes into this kind of more deeper talk. He's shifting to the human experience. He's shifting to everything that we do in our life to try to find satisfaction, try to find peace, try to find protection. This well is representing more than just quenching her thirst right now. This well is going to represent what is it that you do, woman at the well, to protect yourself, to, to continue on? Let me, let me ask this question of us today. What, what is your well? Where do you run to on a regular basis to find protection, to find satisfaction, to find completion, to find the things you need just to get through the next day? 
What have you learned in all of your upbringing as you overcame whatever trauma, we, everybody has some kind of trauma, whatever trauma you grew up with or you had in your young adulthood, what have you learned to cope, to get through to the next day? That might be your well. And so Jesus is making a claim that he has something better than those temporary fixes for permanent problems. He has a permanent source of satisfaction. Would you like to know what that looks like? This woman's like, yeah, yeah, I would. I tell you what, this woman says. The woman said to him, sir, (laughs) that sounds great. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is breaking so many social rules right now. He's talking to a woman alone in broad daylight. He's talking to not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman. Grandma, clutch your pearls. Like, this is, this is so inappropriate. All the social norms are like, you just don't do that. Let them suffer, they would have told Jesus. They're the Samaritans. And Jesus is like, I've got some satisfaction you may want to know about. Would you like to hear about it? She says, yeah. Why don't you tell me about that? This woman is risking being corrected in this very uh, uh, personal space. The, she, she's looking at a man who, as far as she's concerned, is just another one of the Jews who is making big, broad claims that have always left her people out. Everything that the Jews have done up to this point have marginalized the Samaritans and ignored them, no matter how hard that they tried. And now she says, hey, give me, give me some of that drink. She's, she's going to start to find that the things that have satisfied her to this point, she's willing to ask, hey, do you, do you, have, do you have something else? So here's, here's how Jesus responds. In Jesus, in verse uh, John 4, 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have a spiritual talk, go get your man. We'll have a whole family household talk. And if you know this story, you kind of know where this is going. The woman answered him, I have no husband. This is, um, this is a moment of vulnerability for her. She, she is risking so much by saying that she doesn't have a husband. This is, a husband is a source of security. At her age, in the middle of the day, she should be married. Like it's a, it's a moment of shame for her in this culture to not have a husband. Um, she didn't lie though. She didn't try to hide this. This is maybe the first time that she starts to take this mask off that she's worn in public. She, she is a strong, independent woman who, who has this reputation in the community. We're going to find out that the community doesn't, hasn't really treated her that well. And she looks at this man who is answering these questions, and she lets down a little bit of her, her armor. So, hey, uh, I, I don't have a husband. Now, just to be clear, what we've done so far, just to put a highlight on this, is that as Jesus is asking these questions, he's let her know uh, I can see through your armor. Actually, he he lets her know here. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. Jesus answered her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had to have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. He commends her for being honest with him. He commends her for taking that mask and setting it down. What Jesus just did is like, I see your armor, I see the truth behind your armor, and I see the weakness in your armor. You actually have had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now, whatever that situation is, you're not married, uh, and I see that. 
There's something about dealing honestly with Jesus and dealing honestly with faith is that we have to come to grips with this reality that the masks that we put on, Jesus is kind enough to remind us of the truth behind the mask. So many of us, we put on this, this face, this protection, this armor, because the world out there is dangerous, and there's no, there's no mistake about that. The world will chew you up if you have any kind of weakness. And so we do things to protect ourselves. But unfortunately, those things that we do to protect ourselves become themselves toxic. Like how many things in this world do we, do we put on as, as children, and then sometime around like 25, 35, 45, we realize it's just not working out the way that we had hoped it did. I want to, I want to think about like a, the child. Uh, you have like this eight-year-old boy. <clears throat> excuse me. You have this eight-year-old boy who like his, maybe he's in an abusive home. It's kind of violent. There's a lot of pain. And so he decides, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to stop the pain. He turns into the bully at school. And that bully, he gets to hold this armor up and he's going to push people away before they get too close. And it works for him at 10 years old. And it works for him at 15 years old. At 20, like people start kind of pushing him away. Sometime around 25, he no longer has social circles. Why not? Because the armor you put on at eight worked at 10, but it's not working at 30 anymore. You have to do something about it. I think about um, what other armors that we have. I think about uh, a young woman, a young man who in their early 20s has just a rocky, violent divorce of a marriage. It gets really vulnerable. Finances are going everywhere. Kids, custody battles. And this person, this man or this woman in their 20s vows, I will never let somebody hurt me like that again. And at 25, 30 years old, they are strong, they're independent, their shoulders are back, and they don't take any lip from anybody. They're, they're successful, they're, they're financially viable. And then around 35 or so, the, the weight, um, the loneliness, the, I, need, I need more connection, but this armor is all that I have, this armor has protected me. And too often, we try to protect the armor rather than heal what caused the armor to be put on. I think of a, a, a young person who's maybe, maybe a teenager, man, boy or girl, doesn't matter, uh, and in a desperate attempt to find significance, acceptance from their parents, they start to perform, and they perform well. They get all the trophies, all the accolades. They, in their 20s, they're hustling. They're getting their jobs done. They're getting their work done. And then at 25, 30, 35, that well starts to dry up. They're getting it done. They're still getting their trophies, but there's no more satisfaction left. And it's like, why is this? Because it turns out, young man, young woman, that you are more than your performance. And when we believe the lie of the armor, we start to, we start to feel the rot. It starts to sour on us. And what Jesus has done with this woman and what he will do with you is that if you deal honestly with him and he starts to deal honestly with you, he starts to poke through the armor and says, if you trust me, we'll talk about the real person behind the armor, but here's the armor and here's the weakness. And she could have run away at this moment. You've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your husband. She could have left. Oh, it's getting a little too real, right? I don't, I don't, I don't like this conversation with this weird man at the well anymore. She could have walked away, but she doesn't. She doesn't because she knows that he's right. And she didn't believe her own lies that, that moment. Here's how she responds. The woman said to him, sir, very respectful, sir. Uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. That is a fascinating term. She can only, because she's a Samaritan, they only have the first five books of the Old Testament. She can only mean that one of two ways. The sarcastic way is 
She doesn't believe in the books of the prophets. She doesn't believe in Isaiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of those prophets. And so she's either sarcastically saying, you're like one of those Jewish prophets I've heard about, but she started respectfully. I don't think that she's being sarcastic. Uh, the uh, second way is that there are two prophets in the first five books of the Old Testament. There's Moses. And then as Moses was dying in Deuteronomy, he says, there's one that will come, a prophet that is like Moses. And he will come. And, and it's a promise of Messiah. She's hinting, are you that guy? I only have two categories here, and you're not Moses. Are you that guy that has been promised? I perceive that you're a prophet. So she lands with the big question, the question that has been aching on all of her people for the last 800 years. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she's like, which one is it, buddy? I've got, I've got this knot, this 800-year-old knot. I'm just going to lob at you. If you're so smart, if you are that prophet, I have this question. This is like us asking like impossible questions today. Like, hey, hey, I, I've heard, you know, some people say Android and some people say Apple. Which is it, Jesus? And they kind of figure it out, right? So, hey, some people, some people say P&G Indians and some people say Nederland Bulldogs. Come on, Jesus, which is it? You're really, you're really smart. Some people say gun control and some people say mental health checks, Jesus. Here you go. Which is it? It's like these are impossible knots that are really hard to untangle. Uh, some people, like with COVID, uh, uh, some people say mask, some people say no mask. Which is it, Jesus? And just like lobs it at him. If, if you're the prophet of God, which is it? Which, which hill are we supposed to worship on? Because we're, we're wanting this. Woman, believe me, he says, the hour, and there's that phrase that John likes so much, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Imagine that gut check that that was right there. What, what if you ask Jesus, like, hey, some people say Android, some people say iPhone. Jesus is like, well, it's Android. Obviously, it's holy and it's set apart and it's right. Jesus, Jesus is like, he says, yeah, I know you really want it to be that mountain. I know you wish, like, for the last 800 years, you wanted and your spirit was so strong. All of your people said this mountain, but I got to be honest with you, it never was that mountain. The Jews really were right. It really was this mountain over here. And he's just like, that's it. See, she has to deal with the fact that Jesus gave her the hard truth of something that she didn't want to be true. What, what would Jesus poke at if he started poking at her armor? But Jesus doesn't stop there because he doesn't just come with stubborn truth. He has this, this amazing uh, grace, pardon the, the pun there. Um, 23, but the hour is coming and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. An hour is coming, Jesus says, where that mountain over there and that mountain over here doesn't matter. This is, this is like her asking the question, is, hey, Jesus, some people say blockbuster video, and some people say Hollywood video. Which is it? And he's like, well, obviously blockbuster is the more superior one, but wait until they invent Netflix. Like, you won't believe. Like, neither one of those will matter all of a sudden. Jesus, which mountain are we supposed to worship on? The Jewish mountain or the Samaritan mountain? Well, the Jewish mountain is the one, but wait until they invent the Holy Spirit. Wait until Pentecost. Wait until the cross. And then it's not going to matter anymore. Because what the Father really wants isn't for people who have the truth and no spirit. They have the mountain, but they're dry. They know all the things about the Bible, but their worship is broken. He doesn't want those people. He doesn't want that kind of worship. He also doesn't want people who they ignore the truth and they're fighting against it, but they have all the passion in the world to overcome their lack of knowledge, their lack of truth. What the Father is looking for, a woman at the well, 
is for those who will worship him with a balance of spirit and truth. We are passionate about the unmovable truths and gracious to meet people where they're at. The Father is seeking those who will worship him that way. We have churches that are full of all spirit and no truth. It's chaos. They just talk nonsense. Just the guy's up at the front. He's just talking about whatever he wants, whatever thing he's thinking about. But the people are really passionate and they love God. It's all spirit, no truth. And we have churches that they, they can parse Greek verbs like nobody's business. And they haven't shed a tear for sin or repentance in the last 10 years. There's no brokenness. There's no contriteness. There's no repentance. They have all truth and no spirit. The Father wants those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And so listen, I'm going to have to land the plane early before we finish uh, our woman at the well. Um, For us today, he wants us to learn to worship in spirit and truth passionately, but dealing with the hard truths of maybe our sin that we need to let go of, dealing with the hard truths of the armor that's starting to sour and, and buckle starting to weigh us down instead of lift us up like we intended it to? What if, what if Jesus is telling the truth to her? What if the true satisfaction, the truest satisfaction, is on the other side of hard truths? And when you lay them down at his feet, he still accepts you. He doesn't accept the armored version of you. He doesn't care about your armor. He's actually willing to let you put it down. But he has the kindness enough to tell you the hard truth that that thing, that well that you keep running to, it's drying up. And when he says something like that, for most of us, we've lived long enough that we, we've noticed. We've noticed that that well is starting to dry up. We're not getting as satisfied as we used to from that well. And we're scared that one day we're going to hit the bottom of it and there's no more drink left. There's nothing left to satisfy. What hope is there? And Jesus says, please come to me. Come to me. I'll show you where the weakness is in your armor, but I'll give you full satisfaction. I'll quickly tell you how the story ends. Uh, she loses her mind. This is amazing. Like you are the prophet. You are the Messiah. And Jesus drops a big I am bomb. We'll talk about the I am statements of John later, but she basically lets her know, you're right. I am the Messiah. And it's the first time in the entire gospel that Jesus lets anybody know. Some of them have kind of hinted at it. John the Baptist kind of guessed, but Jesus never agreed. She's like, are you, I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, I really am. And she's like, yes. And she runs and she goes to Samaria. She goes to the village, the people who have outcasted her. And she says, there's a man at the well. I think he's the Messiah. He's told me everything I've ever done. And the people are probably like, we all know what you've done, lady. Like it's public knowledge. Yeah, but she accepts me. And so they, on the basis of her testimony, we want to hear about this man. And the people of Samaria, the hated group of people of Samaria, invite Jesus to stay with them. And Jesus stays with them for two days. This is fascinating because a chapter and a half before this, the people in Jerusalem wanted Jesus to be king and Jesus wouldn't stay with them because they wouldn't deal with him honestly. But the Samaritan people, Jesus, we want to hear more. So Jesus stayed with them for two more days. And then the people, as a result, told the woman, because of your testimony, we listen to Jesus. But because we heard his words, we put our faith in Jesus. Listen, you knowing the faith of somebody else may get you to the doorstep of Jesus, but you must do your own business with the Lord. You must talk to him. You must seek him out and deal with whatever hard truths are there and weigh them out and then choose either his way that he promises leads to satisfaction or our way to our normal well that may or may not be drying up. This woman, she did the very best that she could with what she had. 
She was strong, she was independent, but her well was drying up. She did the best she could with what she had, but she hadn't met Jesus yet. And then when she met Jesus, she did the best she could with what she had, and she had Jesus, and it gave her joy. It gave her joy, and it gave her courage to go and face the people that she was hiding from before. She brought them that message of hope. Jesus came to her with a truth that was hard to swallow. You and your people are wrong about which mountain to worship on. But I got to tell you something, a day is coming where that won't matter anymore. But the truth is is that you were just wrong. The people heard that message. They took the hard truth and they moved forward. And in moving forward, they found peace in Jesus. Let me ask this question as we close. What is your well? What is it in your life that you learn maybe in childhood or your early 20s that you just you run to for satisfaction, completion, protection, you run to for provision, you run to to make things meet. How is it satisfying these days? Is it is it still getting the job done? Or was Jesus right about that well that you know, you'll thirst again? You'll be looking for satisfaction again. Jesus invites us, for those of us who, maybe, maybe we meet Jesus at a random moment doing our normal day-to-day thing. You're just doing the best that you can like this woman. Jesus is willing to sit with you if you're willing to deal honestly with him. But you must be ready for the hard truth. And if you listen to the hard truth, listen to the grace. John told us at the beginning of, of the gospel that Jesus came with full of grace and full of truth. As a church, our mission statement is that we influence our community with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. We're trying to have this same balance of hard truths, but they're immovable because they're stubborn, and that's the way God's truths are, but ridiculous grace to welcome anyone. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll watch the cue together. Father, Father, we come to you. Um, we come to you with with whatever whatever armors that we have on, um, and and many of us, uh, myself, uh, I'm willing to admit that um, it just doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't work for the long run. There there are growing amounts of dissatisfaction. Lord, may we find the living water that is in you. May we find the source of true satisfaction. May we have the courage to deal honestly with you and the courage to stand as you deal honestly back with us. I pray, Father, for us in this room that as we face the hard truths, that we will uh, find um, the source of true satisfaction in you and a peace that gives us the courage to face uh, the world in a new way. Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.